All right, part two of the Good Citizen series. We uh, are in, uh, obviously, a battle in America, and that's partly why I'm doing this series is because I feel like the Lord has been uh, shaking in me the foundations of my understanding of what it means to be a good citizen, not just of heaven, but also a good citizen of America. And, uh, and so there's this constant battle that we're in the midst of fighting. And, and I don't want to uh, make it look like what we're experiencing right now is uh, more extreme than it ever has been, because I think America has always been a place of battle, always competing ideas on how we you know, are supposed to be American. What does it mean to be an American? And uh, even as Scott prayed, right, I mean, it's a civil war. I mean, we, had, we fought a war against each other, right? I mean, that's pretty, pretty extreme, right? That's quite the battle. And there's been no other time in American history that we've really seen that kind of, you know, battle actually shooting at each other, killing each other in mass. It's, it's just amazing. So even today, even though there are these battles continuing, you have to keep it in perspective, right? We're, we're not in a civil war. At least we're not shooting bullets at each other. We are in a civil war and have been for probably our entire history as American over the ideas that make up what it means to be America. One of those key battlegrounds is over freedom. And what do we mean by freedom? What type of freedom will we have in America? And this is an apolitical battle. Understand, this is not left versus right. Both sides of the political aisle have inconsistent perspectives of what freedom is. There's good on both sides. I would say good if you're going to make a judgment, and I think we can after we go through this message today. Uh, there's a good freedom in each side, but there's also a bad freedom that's promoted by both sides. More so and more to uh, our situation as Christians, the battle exists within us as well, in our churches and in our own hearts. There's a battle of trying to determine what kind of freedom we are going to live. Which kind of freedom are we going to promote? And the reality is Christians have an inconsistent perspective too often on freedom as well. Lincoln, Abraham Lincoln in 1864 said these words, which were fitting for the time, as you will see, and kind of highlights the racial tensions of the time as well, but are just as fitting, I think, for us today. The world, he says, has never had a good definition of liberty. And the American people, just now, are much in need of one. We all declare for liberty... But in using the word, we do not all mean the same thing. And then he gives an, an illustration. The shepherd drives the wolf from the sheep's throat, for which the sheep thanks the shepherd as a liberator, while the wolf denounces him for the same act as the destroyer of liberty, especially 
as the sheep was a black one. The definition of freedom is the battleground. What do we mean by freedom? Both sides of the political aisle and pretty much all Christians would say, I stand for freedom. But what do you mean by that word freedom? What is your definition? Unfortunately, we're not seeing these kind of philosophical conversations happening, at least not in the forefront. But those philosophical questions and answers need to come. We need to have those discussions. Because how do we know what freedom we want, or even if we want freedom, unless we understand what freedom is? Much of uh, the information that I kind of have kind of inspired in some sense this message came from a book that I read recently that was kind of suggested to me uh, in a conversation with Jim Hardy uh, several months ago. It's a book by Oz Guinness, who if you don't know, maybe you know, but he's a Christian author, but he doesn't necessarily write Christian books per se. He's kind of a a Christian philosopher, if you will, and talks a lot about philosophy from a a biblical perspective, certainly, but it's not overtly always biblical or, or Christian, shall we say. And the book that he wrote and then I read was called The Last Call for Liberty. In this book, uh, it was written and published about uh, 2017, so just after Trump was elected the first time. And in this book, he sets out basically as an outsider. He lives in England, right? He's English, English. And so he's writing as an outsider to America. And he says, America, you've stood for freedom for a long time, but that freedom is under attack. What kind of America are you going to be? What kind of freedom are you going to have? And so he he goes through in this book asking all these questions of Americans. It's a a bit lengthy of a book, and my criticism always of Oz Guinness is he's too wordy. But hey, who am I to say he's a great guy, right? I mean, he's brilliant, so um, whatever. But uh, Oz Guinness, so a lot of this stuff is coming from that. So I encourage you, if you want to dive into deeper into this topic philosophically with freedom, to, to grab a copy of this book and read it. We need to understand at the outset that freedom is God's idea. It started from the very creation, right? Moment of creation. When God made us in his image, he made us free. Free will. We had the tree in the garden of knowledge of good and evil proves the freedom. That's the point of that symbol in the garden. Saying that, no, no, you are free, human beings, Adam and Eve. You are free to make a choice. Do you want To eat of the tree, or do you want to eat of me, in essence, right? To to be in my presence, to to follow me, to surrender me, or to follow you. I've broken it down in my perspective. It's a choice of autonomy or surrender. But either way, from the very beginning, humans were created to be free. To have the free choice of how they live their life. This is further uh, uh, revealed in the story of the Exodus, Exodus chapter 9, verse 1, where God tells Moses to tell Pharaoh, let my people go. Standing up and saying, they need freedom, they're enslaved, this is wrong, we need to free them, we need to bring them out of that slavery so they can be who I've created them to be. In that, the Christians were brought out, but also Israel, God helped Israel to set up a free society, what that looks like. 
Uh, you remember last week, we're talking about covenant. That's how it started, right? Uh, the Sinai covenant. You know, uh, uh, Moses is on Sinai, right? He gets the Ten Commandments, comes down. And the question is to the Israelites, will you choose me? Will you choose to surrender to me? You, can, you have a free choice. They had a choice. They could be autonomous or they could surrender. And they chose freely to surrender. This sets up this uh, society then of rules and regulations of how they are to live as free people. So freedom is God's idea, first of all. And in America, as I think most of us recognize, it was founded on biblical principles. This idea of covenant was in our founding documents, the Declaration of Independence. The idea of freedom came from biblical perspectives. However, we've seen, especially recently, a wave of humanism sweep across our country. Humanism is simply the idea that man is the highest authority, if you will, autonomy. A sweep of people, a, a massive amount of people, a populace of people that are grabbing on to this perspective that they are God. Little g God. Humanism says that, that, that man is the highest authority, and as a result, they can determine how they live. Fully, completely, without limits. And so as a result of this wave of humanism that's come through and uh, with increasing popularity, we see two perspectives of freedom that are beginning to be kind of wrestled with. And again, we don't always identify it, and so I hope we can identify it right now. And the first is theistic freedom, which is a biblically-based idea of freedom, versus humanistic freedom, which again is a humanism mindset of what freedom looks like. So what does that mean? Let me define each of those types of freedom. First of all, theistic freedom. Theistic freedom, if you will, is the choice, the free choice to limit, excuse me, the free choice to limited ability to do whatever I want. In the theistic freedom perspective, God determines the morals, and we freely choose to do only what is moral. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 23 and 24, kind of uh, maybe almost uses a summary, you know, verse, couple of verses on this perspective of freedom. Uh, again, 1 Corinthians 10, 23 and 24. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. So in this freedom, uh, there's four key perspectives uh, that are fleshed out in this theistic perspective of freedom. First of all, ability, they have ability to make decisions and live however they want without coercion. So the freedom we each have in a biblical perspective, we have the freedom to make that decision and to live out our life however we decide, without someone else forcing us to live a certain way or without being coerced by others to live a certain way. Indeed, this perspective of freedom is a moral necessity. If we are not, if we do not have this kind of freedom, then we cannot be held accountable for our sin. 
If there is some other force, either internally or externally, that can make me do certain things, then I cannot be held accountable for those things. The fact that we are able to have this kind of freedom is the reason why God can rightly judge us. He can say, this is wrong. You have done wrong. Here's your choice. You've made the choice. Right? So more, this is a moral necessity. The second key piece of this type of freedom is it is the ability to freely choose to limit ourselves. So it's a freedom to live however I want, but it's also a freedom to limit ourselves. We can resist internal cravings. We don't have to just live out of those internal cravings. We don't have to satisfy those. We can actually make promises to others that can limit our freedom. Again, as a a nation, a covenant, a promise that we have made to one another to limit our freedoms. We are free individuals who have freely chosen to limit how we are going to live. There are certain things that we will not do in specific. We will not infringe on the rights and the freedoms of others. We can make that free promise because we're free. Uh, This is, again, the, the decision of salvation. This is how we have salvation. We can freely choose to accept God as our Lord and Savior. And as by doing so, we are saying that we're going to limit how we live our life. There are certain paths that we will not walk down. There are certain lifestyles that we will not live. We are freely making the choice to limit how we are going to behave, choose to behave instead in a moral manner. The next key aspect of theistic freedom is that it also demands acceptance of responsibility. We can rightly be held accountable for the decisions and the promises that we make. If we make a promise, the person that we've made a promise to has a right to hold us accountable to that promise. The accountability can come on a personal level, can come on a legal level, or it can come ultimately, so help me God. This is the point of the covenant of marriage, right? Uh, The vows of marriage is that the vows are not just between you and another individual. They're between you and God. And that it is God who is also going to hold you accountable to that vow. And the same with the covenant, I would say, in America. Part of our covenant with other Americans is not just between, you know, horizontally between other Americans, but it's also between God. So help me God. This is why in our other documents we have God mentioned in there so often. The swearing to be a, a citizen, the swearing of into office. So help me God that I will do these things. Again, the idea is that it's you know, between me and God as well as me and others. Without responsibility, it will lead to blackmail and dominance. You see, if I'm not held responsible for my free actions, then the person who I have offended can blackmail me. So now they have control over my knife. Now they can coerce me to live a certain way because they haven't punished me for my failure 
So, you know what I'm saying? So there's this blackmail that happens if we don't face responsibility. We need to face responsibility, and we need to present responsibility as well. We should, we should punish those who have done wrong. But it also allows for dominance. If there's no responsibility for my behaviors, then, my behaviors, then I can do whatever I want. Now I'm not, again, limited anymore. I can, I can, I can have all of, all of my cake and eat it as well. Finally, uh, in this perspective of freedom, it demands that freedom is individual and corporate. In this perspective of freedom, all people are free. All people are equally free. What we, it, if, we don't, if we don't have the perception that all people are equally free, if we don't have the perception that freedom is both individual and corporate, then eventually we will violate other people's freedoms. It's the fact that I think and believe that you are free, just as equally as I am, that keeps me from violating your freedom. If I don't believe that, if I just think freedom is individual and it's not corporate, then I don't care about your freedom. I only care about my freedom. But ultimately, with that perspective, even my freedom will be removed by someone else who has more power. So this is the theistic freedom, the biblical perspective of freedom, if you will, that we have the ability to make decisions and live however we want, that we also have the ability to freely choose to limit ourselves, to make promises, and we uh, understand that that this kind of freedom demands responsibility, that we have to accept responsibility, and that it demands an understanding and perspective that all are free, both individually and corporately. Now, how about humanistic freedom? Humanistic freedom, on the other hand, is similar to, in some sense, to at least at the beginning, to theistic freedom. Humanistic freedom is uh, the choice of unlimited ability to do whatever I want. It's a free choice to have unlimited ability to do whatever I want. In the humanistic perspective of freedom, I determine morality. I'm free to satisfy any and all of my cravings of what I want. The first key perspective on this humanistic freedom is the ability to make decisions and live however I want without coercion. Again, same as theistic freedom. Whatever I crave, whatever I desire, I, can fr- I'm, I must be free to act upon it. I must be able to do that, choose however I want to live. No one prevents me from doing what I want is the first perspective. But mo- moving quickly to the second perspective where this begins to diverge from theistic freedom is that I have the ability, I have, excuse me, I have unlimited freedom. So instead of having the ability to choose limited freedom, I have unlimited freedom is the perspective. Matter of fact, limiting myself is an unfree act. If I'm unable to control my guilt over maybe certain behaviors, it's because I have just not matured enough and come to a greater understanding. In this perspective of freedom, resisting cravings internal cravings, is actually harmful 
and his slavery to societies, to religious moral manipulation, and to our own weaknesses. Anyone who attempts to limit my choices is immoral in this perspective. Whether it be laws or whether it be other people, anyone who tries to limit my freedoms to do what I want, when I want, whenever I want, wherever I want, that is immoral. In regards to responsibility, this perspective of freedom sees responsibility only as a, basically a religious manipulation. So society had this, you know, began with this religious perspective, biblical perspective, and because we've been brought up with that religious perspective, it is filtered into all our hearts. We've all been raised on this idea, and so we feel responsible for bad acts when we shouldn't, because I get to decide what are, what's bad or what's good, right? And so if I get to decide, then why society doesn't get a chance to decide that. That doesn't make sense. I get to decide. So if I feel guilty... It's because society is making me feel guilty, not because it's actually wrong. So any laws or social pressure to behave a certain way violates freedom. People who support those laws or give that social pressure are immoral as well. And then finally, in this perspective, freedom is only seen individually, not Corporately. Certain individuals' freedoms trump other individuals' freedoms. The majority can decide what's free for everyone, or a minority can demand certain individual freedoms. But it's not about the corporation, it's not about the corporate realities, it's not about everyone having the same type of freedom or equal freedom. It's about me and my freedom. I have freedom individually. doesn't matter what happens corporately. So you can see drastic differences on our perspectives and definitions of freedoms. And both of these humanistic and theistic perspectives are in our country right now. And there's a battle over which one is right. And again, this is not a right or left issue. Both sides of the political aisle have people who are pushing for both of these different types of freedom. But no one's defining it. No one's laying it out. There are so many assumptions that, oh, well, you know, I, just because I use the word freedom, that, okay, well, that means I'm okay. That means I'm good, right? Because I'm fighting for freedom. But what do you mean by freedom? There's none of that discussion. We need to discuss that. We need to figure that out. What is the freedom that you are championing? What do you mean by freedom? And so this is the battle that we're having. But I, I want to spend a little bit more time on the humanism perspective because, as you can guess, as a pastor, I want to lean into the theistic perspective of freedom because I believe this is the way God has created us. More than that, I believe this is how our America was founded on this theistic perspective of freedom. And if, if this humanistic perspective of freedom maybe was new, if we had no context, we might kind of go, well, you know, I kinda, there's some of this I could fall in. It kind of makes sense. I mean, I, you know, someone should be able to live their life, you know, the way, whatever lifestyle they want. That's okay. I mean, I can see that, right? But we have an example in American history right now of this humanistic perspective of freedom that has fully worked its way out, and we are seeing the negative impact of it. 
and it has to do with sex. So sit back and enjoy. We're going to talk about sex for a while. The sexual revolution in America has been raging for about 60 years now. And it is a humanistic perspective on freedom that has worked its way out over that 60 years, and now we are beginning to see the full uh, effect of this perspective of freedom, this humanistic perspective of freedom, and how it actually is totally self-defeating and leads to enslavement, not freedom. So, free sex, this is kind of what was begun to shove, be shoved on us in the 60s. You know, the idea that we can all should be able to, we have these natural cravings in our body. And it's not natural for us to resist those natural cravings. We should allow those to totally flow. And, you know, for us to have this guilt or, or perspective of sex that it's somehow bad or somehow immoral doesn't make any sense. And so with the free sex mindset, we have fornication that is normalized, adultery. Nah, it's not really that big a deal open marriages, homosexuality, bisexuality, all this kind of stuff. It's, hey, you know, it's it, whatever. If you are feeling this way, if you have a craving, you should be free to live out that craving. How can it be wrong if it feels so right? <laughs> right? Our songs have it all over the place as well. Uh, it's not just free sex, but it's also free from guilt. This perspective, again, of freedom, humanistic freedom, in regards to the sexual revolution, is seeking to remove the guilt. It's wrong to feel bad, they say, about satisfying natural cravings. We should feel good about that. If it's, a, it's natural, if it's natural, then it's good. You know, this kind of mindset. Again, humanistic perspective that is flushing its way out into uh, uh, our sexuality, into in this perspective of freedom. And so we see over, this, over the decades that this humanistic perspective on sex has worked its way into our school systems. And we are trying to, they're trying to desensitize kids more and more and more to sex. What they're trying to do is they're saying, hey, it's okay to do this. It's wrong for us to think that it's immoral. And so we need to actually get the, get the, uh, the societal pressure of this uh, moral perspective on sex out. And the only way to do that is to start when kids are really little so we can begin to teach them, no, 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 sex is fine. Sex is fine. Do whatever you feel like. If you have a craving, just do it. It's okay. And don't want you to feel guilt. So this is their way to try to get rid of guilt internally with the population. Next, we see they want to free people from the responsibility of their actions in regards to sex. They're eliminating the laws that limit certain types of sexual acts. We see even the legalization of prostitution, pornography, and homosexuality. So eliminate laws, add laws that give more freedoms so that people can live this out without sense of responsibility that, hey, it's okay if you do this. You don't have to be responsible for your actions, right? And even, even you know, I don't want to get into this too much, but the, uh, the idea of abortion and, and the abortion pills and the, the, the availability to that is to, again, to get rid of the responsibility, to get rid of the consequences. Oh, it's okay to just have free sex and do whatever. Don't matter. I mean, yeah, let's don't have to worry about pregnancy. We can take care of that. It's no big deal. Right? And so this is all about trying to remove that responsibility because in the humanistic perspective of freedom, I have to be free to live however I want, whenever I want. 
right? Without anybody making me feel guilty or being re held responsible in some way for those actions. And finally, in the sexual revolution, we also see that they're trying to free, be free from criticism. And so they're seeking to shame and belittle voices of dissent. And this is what we're beginning to see, especially over the last 10 years, how in our culture there's this mob rule in a sense. If you say certain words, you are automatically labeled. If you have a certain perspective, you're a homophobe, right? If you have a certain perspective, you know, you're going to get some kind of label laid on you. They're trying to shame and silence dissent because they want to be free from criticism, free from anyone looking down on them or saying anything about them or, or, or speaking to them in ways that, you know, they don't want. Hate speech is beginning to grow and grow, and now, you know, people are getting, you know, you, know, you can't say certain things. If you say certain words, if you say certain ideas, if you have certain perspectives, you, you know, are in danger of someone saying, hey, that's hate speech. I think so many of us, especially around this area of homosexuality, we have been isolated as Christians. We have been shamed into corners because if we were to say that we think that homosexuality is a sin in public, that is the worst possible thing we can say according to this world. And they want to shame us and they want to silence us. After 60 years of this type of freedom being promoted in the area of sex, what do we have? We have a massive amount of people who are in slavery to these destructive behaviors through addiction. How many men in our country right now are addicted to pornography? How many people in our country right now are addicted to sex of some sort? This has not led to greater freedom for them individually. They're enslaved. But not just their own enslavery, but the slavery of others. Consider sex trafficking, which is huge through the roof. Of course, we've got a guy like Jeffrey Epstein, right? This is the result of a perspective, a humanistic perspective of freedom in regards to, this, to, in regards to sex. This is the outcome. You have sex trafficking rampant. You have addictions rampant. Still to come, however, and we've already seen the signs of this, legalizing pedophilia, legalizing incest, legalizing polygamy, these are all to come. If your humanistic perspective of freedom says that I should be able to do whatever I want without any limitations, why would these things be limited? Ultimately, as you can see with even some of these results we've already seen, this perspective on freedom is ultimately self-defeating. It does not lead to more freedom. It leads to less freedom. Freedom individually and freedom corporately. Where I begin to inflict and infringe on your rights, your freedoms, in order to satisfy my cravings, in order that I might be free, you have to surrender your freedoms. And so then it leads to who is the most powerful. And now we have a perspective of power reigning. 
instead of God reigning. All right, so what about America? As I mentioned earlier, America, I believe, is totally based on a theistic perspective of freedom. In the Declaration of, of Independence, again, we see this, all have the right to liberty. All of us equally have that right of freedom. And the Constitution was designed to codify this freedom. The Constitution is meant to limit governments and others from infringing on the freedoms of others. The Constitution defends biblical principles without demanding that you convert to Christianity. All people in America can have life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And the way that we can do that is if we all enter into this covenant where we promise to treat each other a certain way, where we promise to limit our own freedoms, freely choosing to limit my freedom so that my freedom never trumps your freedom. This is the covenant that we have in America. But let me ask you this question, is America a Christian nation or just a nation based on Christian principles? Is America a Christian nation or just a nation based on Christian principles? I would say it's the latter. Too many of us as Christians have actually grabbed onto a humanistic perspective of freedom by demanding that America be a Christian nation, by demanding that all of our laws are supporting and forcing people to live according to scriptural, uh, biblical principles or biblical laws or perspective of morality. This is not what America is. You see, uh, the, the revolutionaries recognized, they came from a country that was both religious and state, and they combined them together, and it was corrupt. Both the, the religion got corrupted by the power of the state, and the power of the state got corrupted by the manipulation of the religion. And so when America was founded, they're saying, no, 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 we don't want that. This is why they didn't set up a state religion. They didn't say you have to be a Christian if you're going to be in this nation. Doesn't say you have to be go to church. Doesn't say you have to live out a certain lifestyle that fits in the biblical perspective of Christianity. It says, no, this is freedom for all people where no matter what your religious perspective is, you are free to live here. The only limits to our freedom is the, fi- the fact that we're limiting our ability to infringe on other people's freedom. We cannot outlaw humanism, as bad as it may seem. We can't say you can't be a humanist. We can't say that you can't be an atheist. 
Yet some Christians behave and act like this and actually promote these perspectives politically. You see, we are just, this, is not, this is not one side or the other. We are all wrestling with this perspective and we are inconsistent in our perspective of freedom. You see, God does not demand that we worship him. God gives us freedom. Freedom to choose to worship or not. Why do we, as human beings, as Christians, demand or try to demand that other people have to worship God? The point of America is not for it to become a theocracy. The point of America is to promote biblical perspective of freedom, where everyone is equal and everyone is able to freely live out however they want to live as long as they don't infringe on the rights of others. Now, it's not just us Christians that are infringing maybe on the rights of others with our perspective. Certainly, the humanistic perspective of freedom is breaking the American covenant to not infringe on the rights of others. It's attempting to redefine, redefine our founding. This is why they're trying to rip out Christianity out of the founding. This is why they're trying to redefine it, make it look into something totally different, because they want to say, no, no, we're not based on biblical principles. The Constitution is based on humanistic perspectives. No, it is not. Humanists are breaking, or humanists with this perspective of freedom are breaking the promise to limit their freedom for the good of all. And they're promoting a perspective of freedom that ultimately leads, ultimately leads to oppression. So Christians, let me ask you this. <laughs> Are you fulfilling your promise to allow other people to be just as free as you are? Or are you breaking your promise to love and respect everyone. I think so many times we as Christians, again, fall into this condemnation perspective. We see another American who's not a Christian, the atheist of some sort. Maybe they're living this lifestyle of sexuality, sexual freedom or whatever, and we just immediately begin to judge them and condemn them. And all we can think about is, I can't believe I live in a country that allows that kind of act when that's exactly the kind of country that God created. This is the kind of freedom that God allows. How do we love and respect those who are living a humanistic or atheistic or sexual revolutionistic perspective? How do we love them and accept them as they are? They're free to live that way. Why do we look down at them? Why do we condemn them? Why do we judge them? This is why as the church, especially with this rise of homosexuality and bisexuality and all the chaos is there, that we as the church should be the place where they can come to find freedom. Not that they can live that out in the face of God, and it's not that we don't say it's sin, it's sin. We need to communicate that clearly, but we still love them in the midst of that. How do we do that? How do we get past this perspective of trying to make America into a Christian nation instead of just allowing it to be a, a, Christian, a nation that's founded on Christian principles? Sorry. All right. Worship team, why don't you come up? 
and we'll close this time. I just want to, I think, close uh, with this quote from Oz Guinness in his book, The Last Call for Freedom, or for Liberty, excuse me, The Last Call for Liberty. And he writes this. He says, when we say that trust has broken down in America, we are saying that Americans at many levels are no longer keeping the promises that they make as free people. Post-truth America has become a land strewn with broken and betrayed promises. Indeed, post-truth Americans, from their leaders down, are becoming the personification of the unbound and unaccountable. Increasingly, there are no binding ties, only egos, interests, and hookups. And along with trust, freedom is the loser. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your goodness to us. Lord, we thank you for this nation that you've given us. What a privilege it is as Christians to be in a nation that is founded on biblical principles. Lord, help us to remember this covenant that we have made, this promise that we've made, to allow people the freedom to live however they would like. Lord, this is difficult for us. We know the life of Christ and how much better it is for all of us. Yet we can never force anyone. And we should never seek to coerce anyone. We should always just love them as best we can knowing that these other alternative ways of life are all self-defeating. And eventually, at some point, they're going to come to that confrontation point where they realize they need something else. Lord, if we've been judging and condemning them for years, they're never going to come to us when that happens. So, Lord, help us to love people well. Lord, help us to live our lives in worship of you, in honor and respect of everyone. Lord, that we would follow your footsteps wherever you lead. That you would be glorified in our life, by our words, and by our actions. But Lord, that people would be drawn to you because of love, not because of judgment. Philippians 2, verses 1 to 4. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy, Paul says, by being of the same mind, having the same love, being full in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. And I have to keep reading. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, 
but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, became born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Jesus' name, amen. God bless.